you would, please take your Bibles and turn them to Psalm 15. The text is also printed there on page 6 of the bulletin. We'll read Psalm 15, and this will be the last in our series, Old Songs for a New Year. Psalm 15, a psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right, and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. You may be seated. And as you do, let us seek the Lord's guidance as we come to his word. Father God, we are humbled as we come this morning because we know the answer to the question, who can come near? And it is only in Christ and by his blood and in his perfect righteousness. And God, you have gifted that to us. And so we come with confidence, but God, we also come humbly, understanding that you are holy. And so we rest not in ourselves, but we rest in Christ. May we hear your word to us this morning, reminding us of the call on all of us to pursue righteousness and to do so by the power of your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. What happens when you do something over and over again? It doesn't necessarily matter what it is that you're doing, but doing something regularly, consistently for any period of time will naturally lead to a certain level of comfort or familiarity. Athletes count on this principle. They spend hours working on this same skill, this same shot, the same move, hoping that it will become second nature. When the time calls for it, in the big game, at the big moment, the body will naturally do what it's been trained to do, Little thinking, if any, is necessary. But this also happens in in the sphere of everyday life. Take driving a car, for instance. The first few weeks of driving a car, everything seems a little bit heightened. Our body might be a little bit more tense. The mind's a little bit on higher alert. For the newer drivers among us, this might be where you are today. For those of us who've been driving for years, driving is a little bit more comfortable. Things have slowed down a great deal. We can relax when we hit the road. We can multitask. We can even drive without our hands or with our minds completely oblivious to the fact that we are actually driving a car. Driving has become this second nature activity. And certainly there are trade-offs between benefits and risks when it becomes as comfortable as it is. But such is the fruit of doing something over and over and over and over again for years on end. Our text this morning in Psalm 15 reveals or challenges us that sometimes we can do the same thing when it comes to worship. Whether it's public worship or our private worship. And for those of us who have been in a church for years, we can be some of the guiltiest offenders. 
We can come week in and week out again and again with disengaged hearts, disengaged minds, without even thinking twice about what it is that we are actually doing here. And yes, Scripture does certainly teach that we can and should come boldly to the throne of grace. But boldly doesn't mean flippantly or casually or arrogantly. And so Psalm 15 provides this recalibration for the people of God. It offers to to shake us up from the way that we so often treat worship. It reminds us how coming into the presence of the Lord is a big deal each and every time we do it. It requires examination. It requires preparation. It requires a heart that is eager to come and to draw near to our God. So Psalm 15 is, is a psalm of conviction. Conviction about the necessity and the blessing of worship, of drawing near, but also conviction about how exactly we can and should draw near to the throne of God. The Lord invites his people to come into his presence by walking in paths of righteousness. And while this psalm may not have started as a liturgical psalm when David first penned it, it likely became one. The people of God would sing it together as a community as they journeyed up to the temple. The song would remind them with each and every step of the great privilege it was to draw near to the Lord in worship. It wasn't something to be taken lightly, something to be entered in casually or haphazardly. Every line meant an examination Every step would demand faith, not in the people as individuals or even in themselves as a community, but in God himself. Because he was the one who was calling them to come, and he was the one who had made the way for them to come. I want to consider this psalm then in three parts. They're printed there for you in the bulletin. First, the essential question, then an exhaustive answer, and then finally an eternal promise. Because that's how this song unfolds almost naturally as you read it. And like David, we'll spend the bulk of our time on that second point, the exhaustive answer. Exhaustive was intentional. It's going to be a little longer. Just so nobody's surprised. But the answer is what David needs to remind both himself and his people of and us as we come to worship. But Psalm 15 starts by asking that essential question. And this question is a stop-you-in-your-tracks question. One scholar actually writes, this is the fundamental question of Israel's cult and indeed of life itself. And here is the question. Look, at me, look with me at verse 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now, we may read this as as two questions, but it's actually one question asked in two different ways. Those two lines parallel one another. You can see it in sojourn and dwell, they parallel one another. And tent and holy hill also parallel one another. And they carry that idea of receiving welcome, of being brought in, of the doors being flown open so that people may come and enter. David isn't simply asking, Lord, who can make a pit stop on their way through? Who can pass through? Who can stop maybe for a quick hello and then on their way out? 
He's asking who can come as an embraced, welcomed, received guest into the house of the Lord. To put the question maybe in a little bit more familiar language, Lord, who is welcomed in your house? And we see that the words tent and holy hill emphasizes the location, the Lord's house. The former pointing likely towards the tabernacle, that temporary place. And the latter pointing to the temple where the tabernacle would would rest permanently in Jerusalem. And you think about it, David likely as he's contemplating this psalm, he's on his way up the hill to the tabernacle to worship. And as he ascends, as he sees the tabernacle with his eyes, this is where his mind goes. Almost a, who am I that I can walk this road? Kids, if you happen to grab one of the the, the kids' bulletin in the back, you'll notice on the front of of your bulletin, it captures this picture well. It doesn't matter if you have the three-year-old under, the seven and under. Both of them at the front have a picture of people ascending the hill with the temple up top. And you can picture them as they're walking, asking this question. It's overwhelming them with each and every step closer as the presence of the Lord draws nearer and nearer. They cannot help but reflect and actively consider what it is they are about to do. This this question and answering, it, It's not a travel game just to pass the time on the road. My girls are currently into the I Spy game whenever we walk or drive places. Neither is this a song that everybody knows and, hey, let's sing it together. Wouldn't that be fun as we're journeying up the hill? No, they're asking the question because there's significance to it. It's preparing them for worship. It's preparing them to enter into the presence of the Lord. And in asking it, all who were going with would be instructed. They would all need to answer for themselves and for the community. Who is it who's able to draw near? We find almost the same question asked again in maybe a more familiar psalm, Psalm 24. Where again, David in verse 3 writes, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? And just like our psalm here, Psalm 24 provides that answer. It's not as exhaustive, but it still conveys that same idea that we're going to look at here in a moment. But we see that drawing near to the Lord in worship demands reflection. It demands us considering our worthiness of finding welcome in the very presence of the Lord. And then in that reflection, we're also preparing ourselves for worship. Because we're being reminded that even though we're unworthy, God is still inviting us to come. And even though we're unworthy, he still places before us the demand of righteousness. And so for Israel, it would keep them from treating that trek in Jerusalem up the hill as a a nice stroll on a Sabbath morning. Or that obligatory visit to the tabernacle, because it's just what we have to do. Which then begs the question for us, when was the last time you considered this same question? Whether it was on a Sunday morning as you prepared, as you drove up the the parking lot and avoided the speed bump and came into the parking lot. 
or even privately as you sought the Lord in his presence, in his word. Hebrews 12, 22 suggests that, that asking this question is an appropriate question for believers today. Because there the writer says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. The reality is what we come to is an even greater place than what Israel journeyed to. We don't get ushered into some physical tabernacle, but into the very throne room of heaven as we gather. It would serve us extremely well to reflect on this question. Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Maybe as, as a family, we commit to asking ourselves this question as we come on Sunday mornings. Or maybe as we enter into a time of prayer privately, we ask ourselves this question. For when we do ask it, we're driven to the answer. And as David is going to show us, the answer is intended to both humble us, but also to encourage us. It stands to remind us that we don't get to come as we please. God has made it clear to us exactly who it is that receives welcome into his presence. And that then moves us with David from this essential question to the exhaustive answer. We see it in verses 2 through 5. There is an answer to the question, who shall dwell? It's not simply a nice idea to ponder, a nice mental exercise to think about. There is a clear and definitive answer. And the people would know it by heart as they would sing it to each other on their way to the temple. We find this comprehensive summary again in verses 2 through 5. It presents to us what a true worshiper looks like. And if you were to count how many qualities David lists, you would see there are ten. Five are positive, one who does. Five are negative, one who does not. And ten, that number, would point God's people and us to another list of ten. The Ten Commandments, where following the law was laid forth before the people exhaustively in summary, which Jesus summarized as love God and love your neighbor. And so David, with these ten, is providing again a summary, a comprehensive list for the ideal worshiper. And notice how you will, physical traits are absent. It's not the emphasis here. It's not the climb up the hill that's the issue. Anyone can make that journey. But also notice that what's absent is the ritual or the ceremonial traits. There's no talk of cleanness, no talk of sacrifice, which we might expect. No, David fixates on the moral condition of the worshiper. He centers on a life of righteousness on an individual and a people who have been prepared to meet with God. One commentator whittles down this list to two categories. He says that this list can be summarized as active goodness and the absence of evil. And I find these two categories helpful as we, we dive into these verses. And so as briefly as possible, I'm, I'm going to hit on each of these ten qualities, many of them lumped together, and hopefully, 
each will shine a light on our own hearts as we've come to worship. Hopefully each will cause us to pause and to examine our own hearts this morning. To look at our own moral condition. So we start with verse 2. David says, He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. This is all about sincerity. It's all about integrity. Particularly when it comes to the faith. This verse is about doing what is right as right has been defined by God in his holy and pure word. Not what I feel like is right. Not what I think is right, but what God has clearly said, this is right. Blameless and right is the same thing the Lord called Abraham to in Genesis 17, 1, where he came to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. It is actually being, as one, I think it was Matthew Henry writes, it is being what we profess to be as the people of God. And speaking truth is just one step further. It is not speaking from that double heart that we saw back in Psalm 12 of the liars and the deceivers, but a faithful and sincere heart. A heart that is pure, a heart that loves truth, it pursues truth, and it overflows with that truth whenever it opens up to speak. So examination. What does your walk reveal about you. Are you what you profess to be as a follower of Jesus Christ? Is your delight in the Lord and in his word, in his righteousness? Jesus himself said our love for him would be displayed by our obedience to his commands. Do you love truth? Is your life marked by truth, both in what you say and in what you do? Jumping on to verse 3, David goes on. Who does not slander with his tongue, does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Here we see our first three negatives. And they flow intimately right out of that speaking the truth in your heart. Because someone with truth embedded there deeply has taken root there, will not slander, will not gossip, will not seek to ruin the reputation of another. But instead, it will, aim, it will aim to uphold, to protect, to value their neighbor. And that's the overarching concern here in this verse. Destroying someone else with our words will not get us to the front of the line. It will not make us appear to be committed or determined. And sadly, we know that we live in a day where this is not the case. Spend any amount of time on social media and you will find people seeking to destroy the reputations of, of another. Look at it anytime someone has been promoted to something wonderful or good. The dirt is sought and then it's flung with the sole intent of tearing down and destroying. And it all gets celebrated. Others are invited to join in. And sadly, we can at times join. 
slandering and gossip may be the way to make it in this world or to keep others from making it, but such behavior should be far removed from those who are coming, drawing near to the Lord in worship. Again, examination time. Are you quick to ridicule, to gossip, or to slander about a friend, a coworker, your spouse, your child, or whomever? Or are you quick to encourage, to give them a word of comfort, to give them a word of blessing? Do you seek to promote the well-being of your neighbor, whoever your neighbor is? Do you seek to protect them from any potential shame or reproach that may fall on them? Do truth and righteousness mark the way that you treat others, whether they see it or not? David moves on into verse 4. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He moves back here to the positives. And I'll admit, there's some interesting qualities here. These may not be at the top of our list as we think about a true worshiper. They might even sound a little bit harsh or extreme. Because I doubt anyone here is is saying, I would like the title of reprobate despiser. But such a title reflects the character and the nature of the Lord. If you don't believe me, you have your Bibles open, flip back to Psalm 5. It's only a few pages, maybe one page. Where Psalm 5 in verses 4 through 5, David says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. You hate all evildoers. And no, this does not give us an invitation to treat those who reject God as scum or villains. Neither does it give us an excuse to withhold common courtesy or decency or respect or kindness. We are still called to love our enemies. But it does mean we're supposed to hate wickedness and love righteousness. We're supposed to be angered when we see wickedness. And we're supposed to esteem those who fear the Lord more than those who do not. It means we don't delight in wickedness, but we cherish and celebrate virtue and character wherever we see it. Obviously, that's a far from easy thing to do in our day. And then closely connected with that is being true to our word, even when it might hurt us or cost us. We don't flip-flop. We don't change our minds. We're not yes today and no tomorrow. We are, as Jesus commanded us to be, to let our yeses be yes and our noes be no in all of our speech. Again, examination. Do you esteem those who fear the Lord? What about if you may not necessarily agree with them about everything? Do you rejoice when the righteous succeed? Or are you more willing and eager to praise the wicked if the wicked maybe aligns with some of your personal convictions a little bit more? Are you true to your word? Or do people, if they're being honest, find you less than trustworthy? And lastly, then, we come to verse 5, where David writes, Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent? 
And yet again, we, we find the negative, and it centers on how we treat other people, particularly those who are struggling and those who are hurting. Bribery and charging interest were big deals in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 23, 19 through 20 said that charging interest to a fellow Israelite, there's a key there, was wrong. Because it wouldn't help them, it would only hurt them. It wouldn't bring any relief to the financial and the physical suffering that they were enduring. And then in Exodus 23, verse 8, and Deuteronomy 16, verse 19, we see the Lord call bribes a perversion of justice, deserving of curse. Because the reality was both bribes and charging interests to fellow believers, to fellow brothers, were a means of bringing financial and physical prosperity at the expense of someone else's suffering or to someone else's detriment. It was to love self more than it was to love neighbor. It was to seek one's own interests above seeking the interests of one another. Which again requires examination. We, hopefully bribes and charging interests are, are not too common for us unless you're a banker or involved in law. Though if you're involved in law and doing bribes, that's a problem. But are you generous? Do you seek to uphold and to value justice in your dealings with others? Whether brothers and sisters here or those outside. Do you seek to relieve the suffering of others as to the best of your ability? Or, or maybe taking it even simply, are you simply fair in the way you treat other people? In the way you think about them? Are you impartial as God's law has called us to be? It is good and it is right for you and for me to feel the weight of this list as we examine ourselves. And I hope we've all done some serious examination as we've sat and listened. Because in doing so, you will likely, and it's hard to avoid, seeing your own failures even in this week. Maybe even in this morning. The weight of this psalm is exposing the things that we should be actively pursuing in our daily lives, but yet we so often are not. Because we're, the truth is, we're not simply called to pursue active goodness in the absence of ev evil only on Sunday mornings. We're called to pursue these in each and every day of our lives. Because they, they matter to our private worship and our public worship. We need to grow in these areas. We need to ask God for this, the strength of his spirit to strengthen us. And then we must repent and confess when we see them. Our time of confession earlier this morning is not simply a filler to make the service go about an hour to an hour and 15. It provides us an opportunity to come in the presence of the Lord and say, we're not worthy worshipers. We plead for your mercy and grace and then find that he gives it to us. And so it's good for us to let the weight of this list sink in for a moment. To not be so quick to just move away from it. But it would also leave an unbearable burden if your ability and my ability to enter into the presence of the Lord was ultimately dependent upon our ability to do this. Because we would all walk away disheartened by our inability to settle here 
And thankfully, this psalm, while calling us to examine and to evaluate, does not call us to despair. Because in emphasizing our need for forgiveness, it's also telling us where it can be found, and it is in the presence of the Lord. Psalm 15 does not place a large keep out sign in front of the Lord. It tells us how much we need to be forgiven and then invites us to come and to receive it. It tells us that God is accessible even to weak and stumbling sinners like you and me. It tells us don't rest in your feeble attempts at righteousness, but rest instead in the perfect righteousness of Christ on your behalf. It holds out the access and the welcome of God because Jesus has perfectly met all these requirements of a worthy worshiper. And so the exhaustive answer is really to fall on Jesus. The one who right now dwells on the Lord's holy hill in the presence of the Lord, making intercession for you and for me, guaranteeing welcome for his people to enter in a worthy manner. And then by falling on him, seeking to be like him, seeking to grow in this display of righteousness as one who has been made worthy to draw near. And finally then, we, we move with David to where the psalm ends, with a confident declaration of an eternal promise. There is blessing promised to those who draw near to the Lord. There is something to be gained from following this exhaustive list that we just went through. And David says at the end of verse 5, He who does these things shall never be moved. That same word moved is, is used in a similar promise in Psalm 125, another song of ascent, where it says those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. We see that righteousness means security and stability. It doesn't mean we'll never be shaken or we'll be a little bit unsettled by circumstances or dif difficulty. Those will certainly come. But as we look back to Psalm 1, we see a picture of what the stability looks like, where the psalmist says those who are righteous are like a tree planted by streams of water. When the storms and the winds of life blow, the wicked are like chaff. They blow this way and that way. The righteous, they may sway a little bit, but their roots go deep. They're secured. They're anchored. They will not fall. We sang in this great reality after Charlotte's baptism in how firm a foundation. There will be times of flood and fire for the people of God. Because our Savior faced such times. And we are called to follow in his steps. The paths of righteousness will at time lead through the valley of the shadow of death. They will take us places we don't want to go and do not find much joy in when we walk them. But those circumstances and those difficulties will not and cannot shake the footing that we have in the presence of our God. We may fear our physical footing, but we need not fear our spiritual footing. It is secure. We will be upheld by the righteous and omnipotent hand of the Lord. We can be confident that the rivers of woe will not overflow, that the flame will not hurt us, 
we can be assured that he will never, no, never, no, never forsake. Such is the promised blessing of those walking in righteousness. I have the Chick-fil-A app on my phone, and without trying to boast here, I have reached red status. Thank you, thank you, I'll take your applause later. Now that used to be the highest status until I think it was a year ago they introduced signature status. And I applaud those of you I know are here this morning who have reached such elusive and dignified position. I, I aim to be like you. But red status still brings perks. You get more dollars, uh, you get more points per dollar you spend, you get more rewards. However, there's a pressure that's placed on you to keep this status, this footing. If I don't spend enough money within this next year to accrue more points, I run the risk of, brace yourselves, dropping down to silver. I run the risk of missing out on the blessing of red status. So youth, if you're here this morning, it will be Chick-fil-A and only Chick-fil-A with every road trip we make in this given year. It's all on me. But in all seriousness, the point of this psalm is not like the Chick-fil-A app. It is not be righteous because if you don't, you're going to run the risk of losing your status. Praise the Lord that he doesn't operate like the Chick-fil-A app, as wonderful as Chick-fil-A is. We will never be moved from his presence. It is secured for us in Jesus Christ, as we have sung about throughout this whole service and will sing about again in our closing hymn. Instead, though, we should be encouraged to pursue righteousness, the righteousness that we read here in verses 2 and 5. We should be eager to live lives that reflect the character of a true worshiper because that's who we are in Jesus Christ. We've been made true worshipers. That is our new nature. And we should love righteousness. It should grieve our hearts to the core when we fail. It should lead us to ask for and plead with the forgiveness and then be reminded of our eternal standing in his presence. We need not fear that one false step will get us kicked out. That's not the promise that David closes this psalm with. If you will, we have signature status and we will always have signature status. Nothing can change that because nothing can change the one in whose righteousness you and I stand. We are eternally unmoved. So then we can be the one confidently, joyfully who does these things things and knowing that by doing them we can cling to the promise we are actually clinging to the promise that we shall not be moved on the top of your bulletin on page two at the very beginning it has psalm the words of psalm 84 4 which says blessed are those who dwell in your house they are ever praising you it is indeed a blessing to draw near to the lord to praise him both privately and publicly. Tim and I typically open our services with the announce, with the, at the very beginning expressing something along those lines. And it isn't simply because it sounds nice or it feels good, even though it does sound nice and it does feel good. It is borrowing the words that we see here in Psalm 15, that those who can draw near are objects of God's blessing. We've been invited, we've been welcomed, we've been given an eternal standing before him. And this should lead us then to honestly consider that opening question. It'd be, it's good to ask ourselves frequently, as Israel would have. 
who can dwell in your holy hill. And no, not for the purpose of conjuring up shame or guilt or to beat ourselves over how often we fail or don't live up to it. But instead, to, to offer an opportunity to honestly examine, to keep us from, from treating worship like driving, where we can do it with a mind that is disconnected, with a heart that is disengaged, to keep us from doing worship on autopilot. It keeps us from thinking that we've somehow earned our welcome. But it also gives us a deeper conviction that we can confidently draw near. That we can say, I can draw near. Not because of ourselves, but because of Christ. And then give us the motivation and the desire to seek him, to follow him in holiness all the days of our life. The Lord invites his people to come in his presence by walking in paths of righteousness. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this song. And God, I confess as much as anyone that I can too often even come here into your presence, even to preach your word, with at times a heart that is disconnected or disengaged, with a mind that is elsewhere. God, I can come over the course of the week where righteousness has not been my main and chief pursuit. And I confess, I ask your forgiveness. God, I, I trust and I rest in Christ, and I pray that my brothers and sisters here would rest in the righteousness that Jesus has secured for them. That they can confidently say that they have been welcomed, they have been invited to come into your presence to worship you. And may that give us all eagerness and joy then to pursue righteousness all the days of our life. By the power of your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.